I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and so this is our week three. And so we've been marching through that book, and um, I hope it's been encouraging for you as it has been for us because, I mean, it is a book that's about Jesus. Uh, simply put, uh, it's the book that I would point people to if they first come to faith because it basically illuminates more about who Jesus is. And so uh, if you're taking your time in your personal walk with Jesus through the week, we would encourage you, hey, open it up, read through the Gospel of John as we walk through it. Um, I believe that it will help encourage you both in the knowledge of Jesus but also in the beauty of Scripture as well. And so um, one of the things that we do that to encourage our staff with, and also to help us out, quite frankly, uh, we have a sermon prep uh, meeting every single week. It's for about an hour and a half, and we as the staff team get together and we take the passage that we're preaching that Sunday, and this is before we transcript it, before we write any sermon notes, we come together and we start to read through the text, and then we also start to start to dive in and study it and see, okay, so what does this mean? What is God teaching us here uh, and it's just a really good, joyful time for our staff to learn about God, to learn about what the scriptures say. And then at the last 15 minutes or so, we take the time, and it's a really special time because we try to figure out titles for the sermon. So it's actually a really fun time for us to kind of be creative and say, okay, what do you, what, how creative can you be about the sermon title? So I'm going to give you a couple of them that we thought of this week. Uh, one of them was, let the bodies hit the flow. So that was interesting, um, given the context. Uh, he's a brick house, which was good. Um, and then one of my favorites was actually, watch him whip, whip, and watch him make, make. So that was, that was some of the things that we came up with. We were trying to be creative. For some reason, it always plays out as song lyrics or titles, so... I don't know how that works, but a friend of ours was invited, uh, his name's Brayden, and we invited him to come and kind of watch what was going on, sit in on our meeting, and that's exactly what he did. He sat there for a whole hour and a half and didn't say a word, and then as we come to the conclusion with the titles and stuff, he helped us uh, out really well, actually, because he finally spoke up and he said, how about Extreme Home Makeovers Temple Edition? And everybody just starts busting out laughing. He drops the mic, still doesn't say another word until, I mean, I think we walk out. And he's like, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And, he, and he's gone. So I don't know how that happened, but I hope that this evening would be fun for you and that we would learn more about Jesus and who he really is. Um, and so I want to invite you right now to open your Bible to chapter 2 in the Gospel of John um, as we walk through. But first, I want to kind of catch you up real quick as to where we are in our story. So chapter one starts out, explains who Jesus is in, in a nutshell. So it's kind of a paraphrase one through 19. And then you turn over and then you end up with John the Baptist. What we found out last week with that is John the Baptist is the MC for Jesus. So like he's Jesus's promoter. He's always his hype man. He's pointing to Jesus, telling everybody, hey, here's Jesus. He's the main point. He's the, the real deal. And then we see that Jesus uh, gets baptized by John the Baptist because John the Baptist is kind of paving the way for Jesus, for the Lamb of God to come. And then from there, after Jesus was baptized, he starts his ministry. So when he starts his ministry, he starts to recruit a group of guys together. Um, they weren't probably the sharpest guys in the world, but he did recruit them as his disciples, as his buddies to travel with him. And the first thing that he does in the book of John with his buddies is takes them to a wedding party. Um, so at this wedding party, Mary, Jesus' mom, comes to him and says, Hey, uh, this party's starting to die down. I need you to hype things up a little bit. 
And so Jesus, being the promoter of celebration, the lover, the respecter of good celebratory things, takes the water that's at the party and turns it into wine and gets that party going again. And so that's how Jesus starts his ministry, very unique experience. But then from that wedding, he travels down the way to Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he enters in for the Passover. So the Passover is a huge celebration. It's like a holiday for the Jews at this time. And so the reason why you would go to Jerusalem is for the Passover. They had people from all over the place coming into Jerusalem to celebrate. Family members, distant cousins, baby mamas, all of them coming to this one place to have a a merry Passover together. So that's what's going on. That's why Jesus would enter that place. Um, and the Passover actually wasn't just another holiday to celebrate, actually. It was very significant to the Jews at this time. The reason why it was significant is because back in Exodus, you see this scenario where God calls Moses and into a ministry basically to free his people from the slavery of Egypt. And so what God does at the end of all of these things, I think it's Exodus 12, he calls out a judgment on Egypt. And in that judgment, what he says is, hey, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn son in the entire land. So all of Egypt. And so that's a huge judgment. But God being gracious in who he is, he provided a way for the Israelites to not take upon that judgment. And so what he did, he actually said, hey, take a lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood of the lamb and spread it over the doorpost so that When God comes to actually enact his judgment, he would pass over the Israelites and only take out his judgment on the Egyptians. And so this is is good news for these people. It's good news for the Jews to celebrate the Passover because the, the God of the universe who loves them said, hey, in your greatest point of need, I'm going to provide a way. And so that's what they're celebrating. That's what this is. God provided a way for his judgment to pass over his people to preserve them. And so when Jesus comes in, that's what he's coming in for. He's coming in to celebrate good news, uh, which gets us to our passage here. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. In chapter 2, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen. And sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So we see this crazy scene where Jesus and his buddies come in and they're ready to worship God, right? They're they're ready to praise Jesus for his good news. And what he finds is a marketplace and what is the appearance of basically basically a a farming trade show is what what he saw there. Now, it's confusing to me why they would have animals in the temple. And so I had to do some research to figure out, okay, so why do they have the animals around there? So let me fill you in. So the reason why they had the animals is because there was a, a thing with the Jews that at the time, the way you would cover your sin is by making sacrifices. And so each individual person had to make sacrifices in order to pay for their sins. And so it would be common practice for them to take their animals into the temple and make sacrifices for themselves. So the Jews were like, well, everybody's coming into town from far away, and we don't want them to scuff up their cars or their nice minivans with the goats and the oxen and those kinds of things as they're traveling with their crazy kids to visit their crazy aunts and uncles. Let's ride a convenience. 
And so what they did is they, they brought in oxen, they brought in goat, and they brought in pigeons so that they can come in and purchase the sacrifices and wouldn't have to lug them along as they travel. Sounds like a practical good idea, right? Like it makes sense to do that. That's awesome. So then we have to get to the money changers. Like why are there people called money changers there? And as I said, they're coming from different places. So some of them are coming from different cultures or countries and different cities that actually have a different kind of currency. So if you know anything, if you've been traveling anywhere outside of the country of the U.S., you know that there are times where your U.S. dollars actually don't make any sense to try to use to buy anything because they won't accept them. And so you have to exchange it out when you get there, right? They have those little booths in the airport and that sort of thing. So that's the equivalent of what's going on here. They have people to say, hey, I understand you have a dollar, but here's a peso. Like they're exchanging the money out for them. Well, again, Makes practical sense, right? Like that's that's helpful. It's a it's a good convenience. And so let me give you a picture of modern day equivalent. So say that City Light Church says that the only way you can come in and worship here is if you wore a City Light T-shirt, you had a pygmy goat uh, that you walked around with, and you can't give donations without exchanging your cash for Bitcoin. Okay, so here's here's what I know is going to happen. If that happens, if that's what the rule is, here's what's going to happen. Pastor Austin is going to take advantage of the opportunity. He's going to try to make a quick buck off of y'all and make sure that he sets up a booth and makes it convenient so that for two reasons. One, he can buy his Apple Watch and his Chrysler 200 that's out there. His jet black's really pretty. Um, but the second one is because he loves pygmy goat. And what more would he hope for than every loved one that he has to own a pygmy goat? Look it up on YouTube. Dude's crazy. I'm not sure why he loves pygmy goat so much. But all that to say, he would take advantage of the opportunity. So I could see it. He could set up the booth right there in the sanctuary. And then he'd give you your T-shirt, take your debit card, swipe it, turn it into Bitcoin and say, here's your goat. And you go off and sit down with everybody else. Like that's, that's the scenario here. That's what they're doing. And it still doesn't sound like that bad of a thing, right? To provide a convenience for people to come in and worship. So this was kind of a weird thing for us to see then. In our text, when we see the moment where Jesus, it says, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. All right, let's just pause for a minute and be honest. Let's just pause. I just read a text that said Jesus made a whip. Okay, like Jesus made a whip. So if anybody in the rooms decides to stand incorrectly around me, I might start to practice WWJD. What would Jesus do in that moment? Don't cross me. No, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. I obviously cannot do that. I think they might take me to jail for it. But when we look at this, though, we have to say, what happened? Why in an instant did he take this convenient and just kind of go crazy on everybody? And especially Jesus, of all people, why would he be so angry? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to answer that with two answers. One... The first one is that they hindered the worship of others. The first reason why Jesus was angry is because they hindered the worship of others. And so uh, with the te- what the text doesn't actually show us is where these animals and the money changes were located. Uh, they were actually located in a place called the, the Court of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles are a group of people that the Jews did not like at all. In fact, like to say they had a little bit of a rift would probably be putting it lightly. Um, they thought they were, Jews thought that the Gentiles were less than because they weren't Jewish. So uh, basically, essentially, what a Gentile is, anybody that's not a Jew. 
Okay, And so when they look at them, they said they're less than, they're dirty, they're not approachable. And so then what they did is they said, okay, you can't worship with us if you adopt our faith. And so we'll give you your own section in the back of the temple. Okay, And so the Gentiles were already excluded from worship with the other believers of God. But not only that, the very place that was designated for them to worship was filled with animals and people exchanging out money. It's a loud ruckus going on. Like, can you imagine that? So take those pygmy goats from our story and imagine we're trying to pray and take communion here. And they're just jumping around on top of each other. And they're neighing or batting, whatever they do. Not sure what kind of noise they make. But that's what they're doing while we're trying to pray and worship. Like, that would be a huge distraction. It would be hard for us to conceive of an idea of why that would happen. And so when you see this, Jesus is angry because those social barriers we're getting in the way of other people being able to worship him. They did not see the Gentiles as equals, both in society, but also in worship. They had zero compassion for those who looked, walked, talked, or voted differently than them. So, back in August, Austin and I went to a conference for our denomination. So we're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It was started in the 1880s. So yes, 1880, not 1980, but 1880. So over a hundred years ago, our denomination was started by a guy named A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson was a a pastor in New York uh, who had a, a thriving congregation doing pretty well, but they were kind of like these Jewish people. And here's how. So at the time in the 1880s, There was a group of immigrants from Italy coming over, and these people were working at the docks and doing different things. So they they were the impoverished, they were the poor, the homeless people, they were the prostitutes, they were the shoremen at the docks. And A.B.'s like, well, these people probably don't know Jesus, so I better go say something, right? So he starts taking his time in his afternoons, and he would go and share the gospel with these people at the docks. And of course, God, being awesome, brought people to faith, and and they would come to trust in Jesus for salvation. And so A.B.'s like, well, what does any good Christian do? Well, they invite people to church. So he starts inviting these immigrants into his church, and his congregation says, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't going to fly. They say, no, you can't bring your riffraff into our congregation And so this is what Simpson said. He just said, you know what, deuces, I'm out. I'm leaving. And so he left and actually started this movement called the Christian and Missionary Alliance about 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. And the reason why I share that, like I said, I was at a conference for our denomination finding out all of this content, and I go into the office of the president of our denomination. And as as I'm standing in his office, they're doing some talking or whatever, I'm looking at these pictures, which are reprints of photos of the beginning of the movement. And as I'm looking at these photos, I see one that stood out to me because it was like one of their first gatherings. I think at the bottom of it said 1884 at the bottom. And there's a group of people in chairs, not much different than this. They're probably some other kind of chair, but they were outside worshiping Jesus, praising Jesus. And then I noticed something. Sitting in the front row were two people that were unlike anybody else in the crowd. They were two black women. Now that set me off in my head because I said, wait a minute, what's the date again? 1880-something? Wait a minute, that's, that's pre-Martin Luther King, that's pre-Malcolm X, that's pre-Civil Rights Movement, and this dude has two black women sitting in front of his congregation. I want to be a part of that. 
I want to be a part of that. And in fact, it is the thing that sold us on the denomination. It's the thing that actually drives me today to continue with this church. And the reason why I came to plant this church is because I want to see the poor, the widow, the orphan, the wealthy, the middle class, the Republican, the Democrat, the college student. I want them all to hear the reconciling message of Jesus Christ that is for everyone. That's why I'm here. And in verse 17, it says that in reference to Jesus, zeal for his house, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed with anger because the gospel, the good news, the grace of Jesus was being prevented from going to certain people. Not because they didn't want to, but because his people were practicing their religiosity and had a lack of compassion for the disenfranchised. He was angry. For the Jew... The temple actually represented more to them than just a place to gather and worship. It actually represented the very grace of God because that's where they provided the sacrifices. But then it also represented the presence of God as well. And I think that the sin that God is, that Jesus is mad about, that is angry about in our text is actually not just that they have a lack of compassion for other people worshiping, but I also think it's because they have a lack of reverence for God. They have a lack of reverence. So the issue for them in this particular text is that they might go out and proclaim the holiness of God and the holy difference of who God is and the goodness of God, and yet deny him in their practices. So though they may have had right orthodoxy, which means right knowledge of Bible truth and theology, they had awful, they had bad orthopraxy, which is the practice of those truths. It's the response of those truths. So they had good, good, solid doctrine, but they didn't walk in it. They didn't really believe in it. And so what they would do is they were able to speak the truth. They could answer the complicated questions that people would ask. However, in the daily functioning of their life, they would act as though God didn't really exist. The place of God's presence was treated as though God wasn't present there. So here's why this matters to you. Like. The way in which we view Jesus is actually more expressed based on the way we treat people that are different and the way we worship him. You get that? So the, so the way we view Jesus is expressed in how we treat people that are not like us and how we worship him. So let's just take a moment. Just close your eyes for a second. Picture Jesus standing right in front of you. Just imagine him standing in front of you. What does he look like? See a tall, pale figure, flowing brown hair, bright blue eyes with a great, epic, nice beard and a huge smile on his face. I bet he doesn't have a whip in his hand. No, what I'm trying to say, though, is that our vision of Jesus is, is only a portion of who he is, the gentle, the meek, and the mild Jesus. It's a one-sided coin that doesn't actually holistically resemble the God, the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of today's culture primarily makes him this palatable, non-confrontational, small, soft-spoken person who actually doesn't resemble a deity but just a normal human being. 
When instead the text would reveal, God's word would reveal that he's a mighty king. He's a creator God. He created the sun. He breathed the sun into existence. He carved away the Grand Canyon. He is a mighty king. He is no soft God, no small God. He is powerful beyond measure, and he is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is both the sacrificial lamb and the triumphant lion. He is the hater of sin, but the lover of sinners. He is full of grace, and he's full of truth as well. And the God of the Bible gets angry. But the way we would describe anger is very different than the way Jesus would approach anger. You see, I think Jesus' anger is probably better explained as righteous indignation, just a righteous anger. But the way we usually function in anger is more of a compulsive, emotional action toward something that I would probably say is more likely sinful than righteous at all. But when Jesus has righteous indignation, when he's angry, it's a holy anger, and it's directed toward things that he ought to be angry about. There's actually several times in the gospel accounts when Jesus would encounter people and he doesn't play nice-nice. He's angry sometimes. He may, be a lamb, he may be the lamb of God, but he's not sheepish. He may be the lamb of God, but he's not sheepish. Can I ask you a question? What sins anger you? What sins anger you? Actually, I have a better question. What sins don't anger you? Which ones don't get you upset? Because here in our text, Jesus is angry towards sin. He's angry because people are being prevented the opportunity to worship. And interestingly enough, it seems like if you go through Jesus' life, he's actually more frustrated, more angry at those individuals who would pretend like they worship God than those who are just broken, sinful people. Let me show you. Luke 18. Verse 9, here's what it says. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's what Jesus said to them. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Then Jesus points to the other guy and says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man left justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. You see it? Jesus understood. Jesus said that this man, because he understood his lostness, he was justified, not the ones who think that they're good enough. You see, the gospel is for all people, black, white, rich, poor, Republican, American citizen, refugee, Democrat. It doesn't matter. God desires for all people to have the opportunity to worship him. And he's willing to go through great lengths to make it happen, even, even if it means he's got to go off a little bit. So hear me when I say this. If you're a dad in the room, 
this text is not an excuse for you to tie up a whip and start spanking your kids with it, okay? Like, that's, that's not what he's getting at here. That's not the kind of anger that we're talking about. Jesus' anger had to do more with people not getting the opportunity to worship God. And I have to tell you this, Jesus didn't sin in that anger. And like I said before, oftentimes, more than not, our anger actually comes from a sinful place. So, if you're angry because somebody, while you're rolling down the street, cuts you off and you all of a sudden spit out some profanities and, or whatever you might do in response to that, that is probably not righteous indignation and probably sin. If you're a college student and you're angry at your professor because he decided not to give you the free pass to extend your due deadline for your paper because you put it off to the last minute, probably not righteous indignation and probably a sin. And if you're a parent and you're angry and frustrated and going crazy because your kids behave better at daycare or school than they do at home, at least for me, that's probably a pride and probably some sort of entitlement going on inside my heart and probably sin. See, that's not the anger that Jesus is showing us here. Actually, God is angered about sin, especially sin that would prevent or pervert true worship. And so here's some examples for us to contemplate in that. I think this might be a righteous indignation if we're angry enough about the fact that our kids' sports take place on Sundays and that anger drives us to action and say, I'm going to choose worship rather than sportsmanship. Or maybe it's an anger that's frustrated the fact that there are people out there who legitimately believe and preach the fact that if you come to know Jesus, you get rich. That should anger us because it's preventing worship from happening. Or maybe it's an indignation, an anger that frustrates us so much to know the reality that we have brothers and sisters who do not feel safe in their own towns that they live in, much less have the freedom to worship Jesus. So much anger in us that we would actually love the ones that are near to us and support the ones that are far off. That's the kind of indignation that I think we see here. Now, worship isn't exclusively, exclusively based upon the place or the conduit of that worship. The most important aspect of worship is actually the object of that worship. And if you're sitting here in this room, I just want to let you know right now, at City Light, we worship Jesus. That won't change. We worship Jesus. Which moves us to our next section here. It's verse 18. It says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So now they're coming to Jesus, and they're saying, okay, what, what gives you the right? What gives you the, uh, the authority to come in and give such a harsh rebuke for what we're doing? And so, of course, Jesus being who he is, he confuses them more <laughs> and starts talking about things. And they're like, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? But what he was doing, though, is what he often does. He wants to drag this out for them just a little bit longer because he wants them, them to know a greater truth, a greater reality. And so he wants to see these people not just worship the place, but they want him to, he wants them to worship the person. 
And I understand how they got there, though, right? So I understand how they began to worship the place of God rather than the person of God. Because if you know anything about the temple, which I didn't at the time, so I had to lose some research. So if you walk into the temple, you have the court of Gentiles, and then you have a a bunch of other places within the temple. But in the very innermost part is a place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was divided off from the rest of the church, or the rest of the temple, sorry, the rest of the temple because it was the place of God's presence. So what they would do is they would divide it up by this curtain that they called a veil, and only one person once a year could enter that area. And that was the high priest. No one else could. And when he would actually enter into that, they would tie his ankle up with a rope. And when they tied it up with a rope, that as he entered in, he would go in and make the one sacrifice for the entire nation, the lamb. And the reason why he had the rope is because if he didn't come into the presence of God correctly, a holy God, he would die on the spot and his buddies weren't going to come in there and pick him up. So they drag him on out of there, right? So, I mean, they, were, they weren't that nice about that. But anyway, so he, he would go in with the rope, make the sacrifice. And so if you see this, it's like, yeah, of course they're... They're like, yeah, that's where the presence of God is. So they're worshiping the temple. They're worshiping their religiosity. And Jesus like, I want to up the game for you guys. I want to show you a greater reality. And so what Jesus did when he came and lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't and then died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave, there's something in our text that says actually the veil, the curtain tore in half from top to bottom. And what he did there. And what he's showing us now and showing them then is the fact that the presence of God is no longer exclusive to one person coming in, but all people can come in. That's what happened. So here's what I mean. Jesus, the greater high priest, offered up a perfect sacrifice, a lamb himself, so that in the presence of God, you and I can walk to the throne of grace boldly. We don't have to have a rope around our ankle anymore. We can come in there freely, not because of something that you or I have done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. So rather than us coming in and having to sacrifice animals or or do enough works to get in, Jesus said, no, 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 my grace is sufficient. I'm the perfect eternal temple. So he came in to say the old temple and its sacrifice is done away with. I am the new temple in the new sacrifice, and I am sufficient. I'm not made with man's hands. I am God eternal, so therefore I am eternal. Your temple is eternal. You can worship me. Our worship of him is not limited to a building or music or even knowing the right knowledge or information. It's all about knowing the right person. He's our high priest. He's our sacrifice. You see, he wanted to show them that, hey, all the stuff you've been doing isn't bad, but it's just a foreshadowing of the greatness that I'm about to show you. It's just a picture. He was coming to stop their old system of works and sacrifice and turn it into a new system of freedom and worship of God. And then he also, he, he gives them one. He says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Because they asked for a sign to show the authority. And so here's what he says. Verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, if you jump to verse 22, it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered it, that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures in the word that Jesus had spoken. 
You see, they thought he was talking about a building, but Jesus was actually talking about a new thing altogether, that he was replacing that building. Jesus, when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, he conquered sin and death. He was the temple that was destroyed, but also the temple that was rebuilt. Christian, this is what our faith is hinged on. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, our faith doesn't exist. And so we have to understand this truth because the works of man is futile. In fact, the physical temple that these guys are having their rift over crumbled in 70 A.D. And guess what? It's still not standing. But there is good news for us. Jesus is. Jesus is still standing with the Father currently in our place, in our stead, as the holy and good temple, not as a barrier between us and God, not as a curtain between us and God, but as the conduit, as the mediator, as the way for us to enter into the grace of God, into the presence of God without any limitation. We can't get to God by going to church and just being nice Christian people. The only way to God is through the true temple, Jesus, and putting our faith in what he's accomplished on the cross. He took our sin. He took our punishment. And the truth is, when he raised from the grave, he didn't come just for us to do a bunch of religious acts. He raised from the grave so we can have abundant life and constantly be able to enter into the throne of grace, into the presence of God on a continuum. By way of conclusion, I want to read something that I found in one of our commentaries as I was studying. And here's what he says. He says, Jesus the Lamb, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God is the ultimate prince of the outcasts. As an outcast, he was rejected by his own people. He stands as heaven's prince, welcoming men and women, boys and girls of all colors and races to approach the throne of heaven's king through the crucified and resurrected prince. And the gospel of John is the story of how, we, how he removed all all barriers to the access. Jesus is the master of worship, and we can cry out for his involvement in our lives. A relationship to the prince comes not through form or formality, but through faith and freedom. To those who struggle with religious legalism or skepticism, or just plain misunderstanding the truth and the grace, he says this, You can take your barriers down because my grace is sufficient for you. In a moment, we're going to take communion, which is an opportunity for us to remember and act in remembrance of what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. And there isn't a barrier to that either. There's no barrier to participating in this. Simply, all we have to have is a trust in the sufficiency of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, which brings us into the family of God. And if you've placed your trust in that, you're part of the family, and so therefore you can partake this this evening. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the bread. Somebody's going to hand you a piece of bread, which is the symbol of Christ's body that was broken for us. And then you're going to take that and dip it into the juice And partake of that as well. And that is a symbol of Christ's blood shed for us. They are a representation of his gospel and an affirmation that, hey, I've trusted in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for me. So it's not about the place in which we worship, but it's about the person we worship. Amen? Let's pray.